Amen. To get us into our text this morning, I'm going to read something else to us and kind of set it up a little bit. One of my heroes, and most of you who have been around for a while hopefully will never grow tired of hearing this, but one of my heroes, um, John Piper, wrote this, and I read it about 13 years ago, and it began to unravel everything about my life and my world. Um, I was chin deep in the Christian cultural world in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, the mecca of all things Christian, maybe second only to Dallas, Texas. Um, I was very near drowning in the midst of all of it. Um, And I read something that he had written, and I read a particular paragraph, and it began by God's grace to untie and ultimately, I think, rescue me from, from certain drowning. This is what he said. He said, the essential, vital, indispensable, defining, that's a lot of words right there, heart of worship is the experience of being satisfied in God. The reason satisfaction in God is the heart of worship is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. This is why Jesus and the apostles were so stunningly indifferent to external forms and so radically intent on the inward spiritual authenticity of worship. Without the experience of heartfelt satisfaction in God, Praises are vain. You need to hear that. Without the experience of heartfelt satisfaction in God, praises are vain. If genuine praise can flow from a heart without satisfaction in God, then the word hypocrisy has no meaning. And Jesus' words are pointless when he says they worship me with their lips, that is, with their, their praises. But their heart, their source of satisfaction, their heart is far from me. That paragraph began to unravel, I think, the very thing that was beginning to choke life out of my soul. And as I began to think about it and pray about it and continue to explore exactly what he was saying, God is most glorified in us when We are most satisfied in him and that the essence of worship essentially is satisfaction in God. I began to put things together, like the connect the dots that my kids do, going, you know, following the numbers and seeing the picture. It all started to make sense. And if God, before he created anything, before anything that is in existence ever became, if God in his person was fully satisfied in himself, if God, before he created anything, spent time in eternity, however he measured time, fully satisfied in himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, looking towards one another and finding pure satisfaction and infinite worship. If that is the reality of the Godhead before he created anything, then when he created us and he created mankind in his image and likeness, then the essence of who we were created to be is we were created to be worshipers. Now, we talk often about this, and I think we don't do it justice. And I know I've said this a hundred times, and I wish I could go back and erase it from your minds all the time and try to do it better justice. But we often talk about how we were created to worship, 
Like there was an aspect of our being that was created in the image and likeness of God to worship. But that's not untrue, but it's, it's not complete. The essence of who we are is worship. It's not an aspect of something we were created to do. We were created worshiping. We were created in the image and likeness of God. We weren't simply created to do something. We were created worshiping. And when he created us, we found infinite satisfaction, infinite pleasure, and infinite delight in who he was and what he had done. The thing is, we're, we're always worshiping, every single one of us. It's the essence of who we are. We are continually giving ourselves away to an idea, to a person, to a thing. We are constantly pouring ourselves out for particular causes or experiences or achievements or success. Whatever it is we think will bring us the satisfaction that we're so desperate for because due to sin, because of the corruption of sin, we haven't ceased worshiping, but we've ceased trying to find satisfaction and being delighted in the infinite infinite triune creator God and we continue to pour ourselves out to many and innumerable far less pleasures we never stop worshiping we just change the object of our worship we never stop seeking satisfaction and delight in a deep and profound way we just change the object of our pursuit but we are always worshiping every single last one of us Atheists and agnostics, Hindus and Buddhists and and Muslims and Christians alike and everyone in between. Every single one of us at all points in all times in our life is always worshiping. Every action, every thought, every deed, everything that we do is motivated in essence by worship. We are pursuing satisfaction and delight in something. And while the object and method might vary... The act of worship doesn't. It doesn't. All of life, all of life is ceaseless worship. Now, I didn't come up with that term. A much smarter man than I did came up with that term. Harold Best uh, came up with that term, ceaseless worship. worship. And in his book, Unceasing Worship, he, he defines worship as this. He says, I've worked out a definition for worship that I believe covers every possible human condition. And it's this, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. You hear the echoes of the same thing that Piper said? That God is most glorified in me, in us, when I'm most satisfied in him. There is a pursuit of satisfaction that worships, that glorifies, that makes much of something else. And and best is simply saying that we are pouring out all that we are and all that we do and all that we will become in light of something that we think will provide for us that, that satisfaction, that delight. In their book, Doctrine, uh, theologian Gary Bershears and, and a pastor, Mark Driscoll, they, they define worship as this. See if you can hear the same echoes. Worship is a biblically faithful understanding of God combined with a biblically faithful response to him. A biblically faithful understanding of God combined with a biblically faithful response to him. In understanding who God is in greater and deeper measures in our hearts, our lives will be compelled to respond to him in biblically faithful and honoring ways. They went on to say, conversely, idolatry is an unbiblical, 
unfaithful understanding of God and or an unbiblical and unfaithful response to him. And so as I began to to see these things and they began to unwrap and I began to see that all of life, all of my life, every aspect of my life, every thought and deed and, and motive and intention of my heart was in essence a reflection of worship of what was most satisfying to me at any particular given time, I began to see that all of life, every aspect of my life, every moment of my life was to be lived out of satisfaction in God with a particular eye towards increasing that satisfaction in God. That God would be most glorified in me as I was most satisfied in him. So to make much of God, for God to receive the most glory from my life that he could possibly receive, I needed to pursue the most satisfaction in him that I could possibly gather. That my life was to be spent out in every aspect, in every moment, in the pursuit of being satisfied in God. And as that became the overwhelming perspective and understanding of my life, he would be most glorified and I would continue to be more and more satisfied. And as that began to sit on me and began to shape me in various and different ways, I began to see that when my life was fully consumed with pursuing satisfaction in God, everything that I did, everything that I did, in one way or another, highlighted the value and worth of God. I began to see that every decision, every thought, every emotion, every affection, it all highlighted the worth of God. It was astounding to me. It was astounding to me. It simply meant that all of my life, all of my life, was worship. And where the rubber really began to meet the road for me 13 years ago when this process began to to start was I was surrounded by a Christian culture that had taken worship and divorced it from the reality of the rest of our life and had made a particular moment of our week, a particular time of the week, a particular style of music, and sometimes a particular uniform that we were supposed to wear, and they had slapped the moniker worship on it. And I had implicitly come to believe and live out the reality that there was a particular time of my life and a particular time in my week in which I was supposed to worship. But I had no idea what difference that made on the rest of my week. And when I began to understand the heart and the essence of worship and the pursuit of ultimate satisfaction in God, I began to see that worship couldn't mainly or probably merely be thought of in terms of a of a Sunday gathering, but it had to be seen. It had to be seen in the context of all of life. It couldn't be extracted. It couldn't be set up on a shelf for a particular time and a particular place. That missed the essence of what worship was altogether. And now, having a right understanding and probably a more biblically faithful and holistic understanding of what worship really is, It doesn't do away with what we are doing here. It doesn't do away with that gathering of the saints that occurred every week, but it actually begins to inform it. It actually begins to inform it. When we have a more holistic and right understanding of worship, what worship really is and what the essence of it really is, it doesn't do away with what we're doing here. It just begins to reshape it. It actually just begins to infuse it 
with depth, with meaning, with power, such to the degree that it's my prayer and my aim and my pursuit and in my life and for us corporately that it would make it indispensable. A right understanding of worship holistically would make the gathering of God's people in our lives indispensable. Indispensable to our time here on earth. You see, with a right understanding of worship and a right pursuit of satisfaction in God, it begins to undo so many misconceptions we have about what we do here. See, a common one for pastors, and I'll I'll pick one, and I'll try to unravel it, and then we're going to see how it fits where we're going in Acts chapter 20 this week. One particular temptation for pastors that was so common for me in in Tennessee and, and so common in my life as I continued on and came to Virginia was the idea that our time together as God's people, as we would gather on Sunday, would be so much more beneficial, so much more fruitful, so much more effective if I could just get all of you to come to this event with the mindset of giving something to God. If I could just get you to think about coming to give, then you just wouldn't come and just consume. And if you've ever been around pastors and you've ever been around church people or if you've spent much time in church, you know that is the bane of our existence. You can get pastors talking anywhere across any denomination and any persuasion of theology by talking about people coming to church and being consumers. And so we would always think it would just be better if we could just get people to come to give, right? If you could just come with the right understanding to give. <laughs> But when you rightly understand worship, when you rightly understand that God is most glorified in us, when we are most satisfied in him, then the the chief desire of my heart for you has got to be that you show up to our gatherings together starved for God. That your heart is desperate, as David would say, like a deer panting for the water. So my soul pants for you that you would show up starving for God, sick and tired and undone of secondary pleasures that you have tried to satisfy yourself with throughout the week, that you would come starving for God, knowing that it's our responsibility here as pastors and leaders to present before you a banquet of his goodness, of his greatness, of his glory. You should come hungry for him wanting to receive him, to be satisfied in him in deeper measures. And when that begins to shape the way we understand what we're doing here, we also begin to see that not only should we come starving for him, but when we're here, our time here is not about us. This right understanding of worship makes our time here radically God-centered and not you-centered, not me-centered. I'm tired of myself. I've had enough of myself. My wife has had enough of me. But when we come together, collectively persuaded that there is nothing on earth of greater value, there is no power, there is no success, there is no reputation, not even health itself is of greater value than the worth of being satisfied in God for who he is towards us through his son Jesus. When we come together collectively intent in knowing that and in deepening our satisfaction in that, it transforms why we do what we do here and then informs what we do here. It begins to inform the songs we sing, the prayers that we pray, 
the scriptures and the way we explain them and the way we understand them. A right understanding puts God back at the center of our time together when we're so prone to easily push him aside. We see that what we do down to the reading and teaching of his word is not mere formality that we just have to endure. We don't just do responsive readings and scriptures to endure them and sing songs to endure them, to do whatever it is we thought we were supposed to do to get done whatever it is we thought we need to get done. They're means of enriching our delight in God and expressing our satisfaction in who he is. Our time then becomes infused with depth and meaning and and power. And when we come focused on what we give God instead of coming in pursuit of a deepening satisfaction in him, when we come with the intent focusing on what we're going to give God, then slowly but surely and implicitly in the way that we do what we would do, we would begin to push him out of the center and to the periphery. And when we come focusing on what it is we're going to give God, when I spend my time trying to motivate you to come together to give God something, what becomes the central defining factor and motivation and assessment of our time together? The quality of our gift. All of a sudden, we're preoccupied with, have we sung well enough unto the Lord? Have our musicians played in excellence enough as an offering befitting of God? Have I done what I was supposed to do in a way that was befitting and worth God? All of a sudden, the focus becomes on our giving and on me and not him. It's dangerous. And it's destructive. And I understand where it comes from. I've stood up more times than I even want to admit and tried to do that very same thing. But when we have a right understanding of worship it doesn't cut the legs out from under what we do here as we begin to see that worship is ceaseless and it's part of our everyday life and it reflects the decisions that we make and the things that we pursue and it doesn't cut the legs out from under what we do here it just begins to inform it and bring depth and bring meaning and so piper who started this process with me went on to inform that nothing keeps god at the center of corporate worship, like the biblical conviction, that the essence of worship is deep, heartfelt satisfaction in him. And the conviction that the pursuit of that satisfaction is why we are together. Together, we pursue our satisfaction in God through expressing our dependence on God and expressing our gratitude for God and expressing our delight in God. That's why we do what we do here on Sunday morning. That's, that's why we do what we do here. And if you've, you've got your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 20. I just gave you my sermon. Forget outlines and notes. I just jumped ahead through the entire thing. So now we'll go back and make sense. Acts chapter 20. We're going to get a quick look this morning. A quick look. Not a complete look, but a quick look. And a mildly humorous one at that, at a corporate worship service of the early church. Last week, we saw 
God's grace worked out in the life of the Apostle Paul and the planting of the churches in Corinth and Ephesus. And as we look through those stories from that 50,000-foot view, we just kind of walk through them. We then looked at how God began to work his grace out in the life and in the establishing and planting of this church. We tried to connect what God was doing there with what God had done here. And we, we kind of walked through God calling the Apostle Paul to a particular place and, and then him reaching out through the gospel to particular people and then God providing for the needs that he had had and, and then God providing a place for them to actually meet. And as the gospel began to take root and people began to get saved, pushback came from other people. Criticism came from other people. Untruths were spoken about the Apostle Paul and the church from other people and in Ephesus, we didn't spend a lot of time on it, but not only did the church push back, the, the, the synagogue push back, but even the city pushed back as the gospel took root and men and women began to get transformed by the person and work of Jesus and began to burn their, their uh, artifacts and, and, and books and spells that the men who crafted idols in the city were losing business and they began to get enraged with the Apostle Paul and a riot ensued. And, and so Paul got pushed back from everywhere. He got pushed back from churches. He got pushed back from the city. And we mirrored that process in just the three years of the life of this church. And we saw God's grace through the whole thing. And, and in the next couple of weeks, Acts is going to give us quick looks at a couple different aspects of the life of the church together. We're going to get a quick look at the corporate worship of the church today. And in a couple of weeks, we'll get a quick look at the organized and qualified leadership of the church and the elders. And we're going to do the same thing. We're going to look at the text We're going to see a couple of the principles from the text, and then I'm going to try to marry it with what that looks like here. So if you ever watched VH1 Storytellers, that's kind of what we're doing for the next few weeks. I'm going to explain the text, and then we're going to connect it to what it looks like here and and hopefully better inform you for some of you who are new here, but some who have been around for a while and wonder why we do what we do. Um, It'll help better inform uh, and and give you a context for those things. So um, Acts chapter 20, you should be there. The Apostle Paul has had to flee Ephesus because of the riot. He's picked up. He's traveled through the, through the neighboring towns and the neighboring cities. He spent months um, in Macedonia, and then another uprising came and plot against him came, so he had to leave. And you come down to verse 7 in Acts chapter 20, and this is where we're going to pick up this morning. Acts 20 verse 7 says this, On the first day of the week when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. You should like Eutychus. If any of you have been around, you should like Eutychus. You've got a brother in your drowsiness. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story, and he was taken up dead. But when Paul went down and bent over him and taking him up in his arms, said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, look at that, he just went back to business, didn't he? He had broken bread and eaten. He conversed with them a a long while. He kept preaching until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So what I want to do this morning, with the time that we've got left, three main, three main objectives. I, I want us to see that it is normal for local churches to gather together for corporate services of worship. It's normal, and dare I would say in the New Testament, even normative, for local churches to gather together for corporate services of worship. But that when they gather, when they come together for a corporate service of worship, 
The service itself should aim to make the gospel clear, make the gospel central or clear, and leave people impressed and more satisfied with God. So it's normal or normative for local churches to gather together for corporate services of worship, and when they do, the central aim of that time should be to make the gospel central and clear, and for you to leave more impressed and satisfied with God. Not me, not the building, not what we do, but with God himself. So the first thing is that it's normal, normative, for local churches to gather together for services of worship. And we get this implicitly a little bit in in verse 7, and I'm going to try to spend a little time to to make sense of it and maybe answer a couple common questions for everybody. But you see it, let's read verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. So Paul has just arrived in Troas, and it says he's going to stay for seven days, is what Luke says. And then Luke says that on the first day of the week when we gathered. Luke is implying in his language, in the way that he's writing, that when Paul arrived and he intended to stay for a week, when the first day of the week came, as normal, they went and they gathered with God's people. That there was something that was going on that they were coming into, that they were joining into, that was already happening before the Apostle Paul arrived there. I mean, some people have read this text, and this is the first text, and we'll talk about this in a minute. This is the first text that you find in the New Testament that begins to intimate that the church began to gather on the first day of the week instead of Saturday. They gathered on Sunday instead of Saturday, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But you see from what Luke is saying that Paul came in and he joined this. Some people tend to think that this was a special meeting that happened because the Apostle Paul had showed up to Troas. He had never been to Troas before. So word got out and everybody got together and they were all going to show up on this day because the great apostle was here. But that's not what Luke is intimating. The word that Luke actually used for gathered is a non-technical word. I I, I don't even think it's a, I can say this, but I would say semi-technical word. Can I say semi-technical? Is that an oxymoron? Semi-technical word. That the, Luke, that the Luke uses, uh, that's used throughout the New Testament, that indicates a formal gathering. There was an intentional gathering. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians when he writes of the church gathering on the first day of the week. It's a semi-technical word for assembly, and Luke uses this word, and it indicates that what he and Paul went into was something that was already happening. The church was already gathering together on the first day of the week, and they just joined in with them. And the fact that he mentioned that it was on the first day of the week is really significant. Uh, This is the first time you see that mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, Previously, the the Jewish people had had always gathered together in the synagogues on on the Sabbath day. And that was the last day of the week. And they would gather together on on the last day of the week, or the seventh day, which was Saturday. And they would gather in the synagogues. They would cease from their work all day. And they would gather together for the reading of the word, the explanation of the word, or the teaching of the word. They would sing songs together. They would pray together. And they would spend the day in worship together towards God. That's what was going on. But Luke is making a very careful note here that what they went into happened on the first day of the week. That it was a little bit different than what everybody had been accustomed to. And I, I want to kind of give you some background. Do I have time? Let me look at my clock. Yeah, I've got time. I'm going to give you a little bit of a background on this, on, on why they began to meet on the first day of the week. I mean, why not just go ahead and meet on Saturday? Everybody was accustomed to it. You were already doing those things. You're already reading the scriptures. You're already teaching the scriptures. You're already singing. You're already praying. You already had a place you were going to. Why not just keep it the way it was? Um, so why did they meet on Sunday? Why the first day of the week? Let me go back and explain to you why they actually met at all and help you make sense of why they might actually meet on the first day of the week and why we do it on Sunday. Have you ever wondered why we meet on Sundays? 
Has anybody ever asked that question? Why not the rest of the days of the week? Yeah, at least Caleb's being honest. This is for you, Caleb. It's not for anybody else. It helped me. It'll help Caleb this morning. For one reason, one reason the corporate church gathered even prior to this is because it was one of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you knew that. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Like Exodus chapter 20. God had told his people this in the Old Testament. He said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord God. And in it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your maidservant, your manservant, your cattle, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. So, so God said a few things about the Sabbath day here. One, he said, remember it. Remember it. Don't forget it. But remember the Sabbath day. It's not something that's supposed to slip your mind. This is something you're supposed to pay attention to. And you're supposed to remember it. And God said, keep it holy. Right? Holiness means set apart to the Lord. It, keep this day set apart towards God. It's not aimless rest. It's not aimless work. It's not mindless work. But it's a day that's set apart to the Lord. It's a day that's set apart for an intentional focus on him. He also said you're to do it one day out of seven. So you're supposed to work six and rest one. And we won't get into this because we don't have time. I wish we had, we need a couple whole weeks on all this, but we don't have the time. But notice that he didn't say what day. He just said one day out of seven, right? He didn't tell them what day. He just said one day out of seven. But that's for here and right there. That's just for your own tidbit. Um, he also said don't cheat. He said you can't just cease your work today but make everybody else in your household and all of your maidservants and manservants and cattle and, and sojourners who you had used and employed in, in your operations and what you were doing, you couldn't just let them work either. So you couldn't just cease your work and put everybody else to work to keep your business going and to keep the money coming in. Don't cheat. This was to be a day that you were to cease what you were doing and to set it apart, to make it holy unto the Lord, not aimless, but focused on him, a day you weren't supposed to forget and a day you weren't supposed to cheat on. Why? Because... God rested after creation. Because after God had done his work for six days in creating all things that are, he looked at it, was satisfied with it, saw that it was good, and he rested. He said that he blessed that day. He made it a blessing. God blessed that day. He made the observance of that day to be a blessing. He made it for us. That when we observe that, the way that he observed that day of rest for creation, it would be a blessing to us. And he said he hallowed that day or he sanctified it. He set it apart for himself. He blessed it and he set it apart for himself. So as we cease what we were doing and we set the day apart for a focus on God because of his satisfaction in his creative powers, we set that day focusing on him as our creator and as our sustainer, as the one who has brought all things that exist into being, the one who upholds all things by the very word of his power, the one who has given us life and breath and everything in this earth, and that all that we have is due to his grace in creating and sustaining all things, including ourselves. That's what Exodus 20 is kind of getting at, is for why we are to stop one day out of seven days to join God in making much of himself as creator and sustainer. That's what it's talking about, but that's not all that the scriptures say about it. Deuteronomy 15 has a little nuance about why we're to set this one day apart and why the church did this, why the Old Testament church did this. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, You shall remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt, And the Lord your God brought you out, thence with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, 
the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So that day is not just for rest, not just for recuperation, not just set apart for focused and worship and rest and satisfaction in God as creator, but for the fact that he's not only shown his power in creation, but in also salvation. The God, that God is not only the great creator and sustainer, but redeemer. So put them together, one day out of seven, set apart to God, reminding us that he is our creator and our savior, that we didn't make ourselves and we can't save ourselves apart from his grace. This is to be the intention of our thought and heart on this Sabbath day as he's laying it out. And then he keeps going. Exodus 31, 12 and 13. The Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So this Sabbath day was for them a sign that God and not us has sanctified us. That God in his work has set us apart wholly for his pleasure. Nothing that we could do. We couldn't do that for ourselves. He has set us apart. So the Sabbath day was a way of remembering and expressing the truth that that God is our creator and our deliverer and our sanctifier. That we're dependent on him for all that we have in the world, for our deliverance from enemies and for our holiness. We remember on that day that he has indeed designed us to work. But our work never creates, it never saves, and it can never sanctify. And so God's people in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, did this on the seventh day, mirroring God's rest in his victory of creation. They set apart the seventh day of the week, remembering God as creator and sustainer, redeemer from all that had been oppressive to them, especially in Egypt as God had used that reference, and that God had set them apart wholly for him. This is what they did. And then we come to Acts chapter 20, and we find the first reference to the church now on this side of the cross, meeting on the first day of the week. Why did they change it? They're going to do the same things. They're going to get together, read the scriptures, teach from the scriptures, pray together, sing songs together, spend the day together in worship. Here in Acts 20, it says they move to Sunday. Why? Well, the Jewish church did it on the seventh day, reflecting God's victory in creation. The New Testament church moved to Sunday, reflecting God's victory in new creation. That through the person and work of Jesus... His life, death, and resurrection on that first day of the week, on that Sunday, signals God's victory in making us new creations. God's victory in rescuing and redeeming and saving us from the slavery and certain death of sin. God's sanctifying us and setting us apart as holy to himself through the work of his son, Jesus. The New Testament church took the worship that they had observed and began to inform it with the gospel. And they began to say, the better reflection for our time set apart, holy, devoted to God, remembering him as creator, sustainer, redeemer, rescuer, sanctifier, is on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that fulfills his long-awaited promise through his son Jesus. And this is why we find in Acts chapter 20, this reference, and then in Paul's letters to 1 Corinthians, that the church now met on Sunday, because it reflected the fulfillment of God's promise. It reflected God's victory through Jesus over Satan, sin, and death. It reflected our being made new creations, being set apart for God, being redeemed from Satan and sin and death. Jesus rose, rose in victory on the first day. 
So the early church gathered together to remember God and all of his goodness and fullness through Jesus on that first day. And the subtle shift, it's just a day, but the subtle shift began to make the gospel more clear and began to make the gospel more central in the gathered worship of God's people. As we'll see, many of the practices remain the same. They still read the scriptures. They still taught from the scriptures. They still prayed. They still sang songs, but they were now informed. Informed differently. They were now informed by God's work through his son. They were now central and centered on the gospel. And all that they did from the time they met to what they said and what they sing and how they prayed was centered on the gospel. Informed by the gospel. Transformed by the gospel. And in celebration of the good news of the gospel. The person and work of Jesus. So when the church gets together and it's normative for the church to gather weekly together for corporate expressions of worship, dependence upon God, satisfaction in God, delight in God, it's normative to do that. And when we do it, the gospel has got to be clear and the gospel has got to be central. That is a primary aim of the gathering of God's people. This is what the New Testament church would begin to do. They pursued a deep and abiding satisfaction in God through Jesus as their creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. This is what they began to express. This is what just one shift of a day began to communicate to the people around them. Just the shift in day began to communicate to the Jews of the synagogues the difference between their hope and the hope of the New Testament church. Just, just one shift in day. But they went on to do a couple other things that made the gospel central, things you'll recognize here and then We'll take a little time to kind of explain what we do and how this informs what we do. Luke mentions two things that happen when they gather together. He said, when they came together now on the first day of the week, so we gathered together and broke bread. They gathered to break bread, Luke said. And Paul talked with them. Now, breaking of bread is just a New Testament term for communion, that's what we call it, or, or the Lord's Supper. It's the distinct practice of the Christian church that tangibly, like tactilely, with our, our hands, with our mouths, with our senses, with our, with our bodies, it, it tangibly and in a tactile way reminds us of God's sacrifice through his son Jesus for our sin. When we take communion and we remember Jesus' body broken on our behalf and his blood poured out on our behalf, it's a tangible reminder of the heinousness of our sin, the depth of our idolatry, the pervasiveness of our misplaced worship, our tendency to, to pursue satisfaction in things other than God. It reminds us of the cost of that sin, that it cost him his own son, his body broken for us, his body exhausting the wrath of God's justice in our place for our sin. The church would gather together in a radically gospel-centered way and remember the good news of God's grace poured out and fulfilled for them through Jesus. But Luke also says that when they would gather together, Paul talked with them. Now, that particular word talked is the same word that Luke uses chapter or two back to explain Paul's preaching in the synagogues of Ephesus and Corinth. When the church would gather together, and in this particular instance, and the apostle Paul was present, he would reason from the scriptures. 
We've talked about this for weeks, and Ray did a great job on preaching this about a month ago, three weeks ago. You can go back and listen to it. But it was Paul's habit to open the Scriptures and to reason from the Scriptures how they pointed to Jesus and how Jesus was the fulfillment of the hope of the Old Testament Scriptures. They would read the Scriptures with an eye towards the Gospel, towards Jesus, redefining their worship, redefining their satisfaction, bringing eternal and lasting comfort and hope through God's grace shown them in Christ. So they would gather together in a radically gospel-centered way, remembering the seriousness of their sin and the cost of grace and forgiveness in Jesus' body broken. And they would open up the scriptures and they would show how God had always been pointing towards this and how he had fulfilled all of this in Jesus. Their practice was radically gospel-centered as they remembered God's grace poured out, poured out through Jesus. Now Luke doesn't mention singing. He doesn't mention prayer. He doesn't mention many other of the aspects of what tend to go on when the church gathers. He mentions two of the primary ones. We know from other parts of the New Testament that when the church gathered together for corporate services of worship, they would sing, they would pray, they would collect offerings. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The other time, the first day of the week is mentioned. Paul explicitly talks about the church gathering together in this type of meeting, but then having the intentional purpose of taking up an offering to meet the needs of the saints. You see all these different elements played out in the life of the corporate worship of the church, but here, in this instance, we see the two primary, most gospel-central ones, the ones that shape our worship, the preaching of God's word, and the remembering of Jesus' sacrifice in our place through taking up communion. The gospel has got to be clear and has got to be central when the church gathers together for corporate worship. So uh, our aim in, in crafting what we do, and now I'll try to take this and, and overlay this a little bit on what we do and try to unpack what we do here together for those of you who are new or who have been around and maybe just don't know why we do what we do. I mean, why we do things the way we do and why we order things the way we do. It's very intentional. We want to make the gospel clear in everything we do. Not just what we say, and not just what we pray, not just what we sing, not less than those things, but so much more in how we actually order our time. The, the various elements and, and structure of our time together, they're put together to mirror God's action in our life, God's intention in our life and our response to him, God taking the initiative in our life and us then responding to him for who he is and what he has done. Where we intentionally do what we do and order what we do to clearly communicate God's holiness, our sin, Jesus' death in our place and resurrection in our place and our need to repent of our sins and trust in him for salvation. That's not just what we say, but it comes out in how we do what we do. And here's what I I want you to see. Um, I'm going to read you something that our own Shelby Murphy has written. And if you don't know, you need to know that every single week, Shelby writes a preview of our service that explains what we're going to do and why we're going to do it and informs the gospel centrality of it and how it all fits together. And we put it on the site. Every single week you can go around Thursday and you can read a preview of what we're going to do and begin to prepare yourself for what we're going to do. You can know the songs we're going to sing, the sermon I'm going to preach, why we're doing what we're doing. And he's even doing a series right now where he's taking all these different elements of our service and I'm going to explain them. And he's writing about each and every single one of them. Read about one a week, two a week. One a week? So once a week, he's taking one of these pieces apart and explaining it and writing a brilliant little article about why we do what we do and and what it actually means. And I would encourage you to go and actually read them and be informed and understand how rich 
the time that we have together really is. But this is something he wrote. I'm not going to take credit for this. He said, every Sunday we seek to answer the following questions through the songs we sing, the prayers we pray, and the scriptures we read. Who is God? What has he done for us in Christ? Who are we in light of that? How do we actually respond? The hope is that when we see who God is and what he's done for us in Christ, we're reminded of who we are and the grace and mercy available to us in Jesus. In this, we celebrate Jesus' victory over Satan, sin, and death, and the payment for our sin on the cross. We then rejoice as we are sent out to live in this reality in our daily lives through the power of his spirit and the continuation of our worship. That's why we do what we do. So if you've got your bulletin, did you get a a bulletin or or a worship guide when you came in? Did you get one of these? Pull that out. I'm going to show you what it is we do because this thing tends to be like that emergency pamphlet on an airplane. You know, have you ever actually read those things? They tell you every time you get on an airplane to pull that thing out and read it. And if you actually do, it'll probably save your life. But none of us ever actually read them. And I don't suspect that many of you actually ever read these when you get them. But these actually inform you on what we're doing and why we're doing it. Look at the first page. It says, each week our service is structured to mirror the rhythm of God's action in our lives. He reveals himself to us and we respond. When we see who God is and what he's done, we're reminded of who we are and what we do. And the grace and mercy available to us in Jesus. So listen to this bold statement right here. This is every week when we come together. It is our hope that you see who God is this morning and that you experience the heart of the gospel, that God is holy, I am sinful, and Jesus is my Savior. Everything that we do and choose to do and say and sing and pray and read and respond to is done with an aim towards that end right there. And so what we do when we come together is mirroring what we think is God's rhythm in our life, of God's action in our life, and in and of itself implicitly begins to display and unpack the gospel itself. So when we first come together, you see right there that God calls his people to worship. That we begin our time together by focusing on God and remembering that he has made us. We read passages of scripture together and then respond by singing singing songs that focus on God's glory. This is just the continuation of our worship. Remember, our worship is ceaseless. It never ends. We are at all times and in all ways and in all places worshiping. And we don't come together here now to go to get our worship on. You don't wake up and go to worship. I'm sorry, I can't go to brunch. I've got to go to worship. I'm sorry, I can't go to the game. I've got to go to worship. Oh, I can't sleep in. I've got to go to worship. Well, you're worshiping in all those things. And so when we come together, we're reminding of ourselves that we're continuing in our worship. And that's how we start. Some places have a call to worship. We've chosen to phrase it as the continuation of worship. To implicitly, weekly remind us that we're always worshiping. And then that God breaks in. And it's on his initiative that he calls us to himself. That we don't presume in our sin upon his goodness and grace. That he actually calls us to himself. This is how we actually start our service. From Shelby's little write-up. He said, we do this primarily by using scriptures and prayers that help inform the goodness, grace, and greatness and glory of God and by singing songs that ascribe to God his worth. Recognition of God's true nature, nature begins the flow of the gospel story 
not just in the progress of our service, but in our hearts. It's what you can call adoration. And that's how we actually begin. Continuing in our worship, reminding that God breaks in. God breaks into our life. God breaks into the mess that we're in. At times when we have no desire for him, no recognition of him, he breaks in. For those of you that know him deeply, you know he broke in. And he called you to himself. And this is how we start. This is how we remind ourselves. And and from there, after God calls us to himself, he then speaks to his people through his word. So God calls us to himself. We respond in adoration. Songs and prayers of praise for his goodness and his grace. And then he speaks to his people through his word. This is the central part of our time together. This is the central reality of our time together. What we need more than anything in our time together is to hear from God through his word. This is what we need. His word, Paul said, is God breathed. He breathed his own word and his word is profitable for teaching and correction and training in righteousness that every man and every woman may be competent and equipped for every good work that God has planned beforehand for you to walk in. When we come together, we need to hear who he is and what he has done and the purpose for which he has created us. God has ordained that people hear the preaching of his word and the good news of his word about his son Jesus and that that be his power to transform dead hearts. So the central defining time as we gather together comes as God speaks to us through his word. We will always do that. If everything else will fail, we will come together and we will hear God's word. And we will pray that God's spirit use whoever is preaching to use their human words to do what only he could do. And that God knows what he needs to accomplish in each and one of your hearts. And so I preach expectantly. I don't know what God needs to accomplish in your heart in particular right now, but I know that he does. And I know that we're called to be faithful to his word and to point you to his son and his spirit will do whatever he needs to do. And so as he's called us, he then speaks to us and we respond. Some of you respond like Eutychus. Some of you get a little drowsy. You get a little sleepy. It gets hot. Now I could use him as a bad example here, but we've got to cut Eutychus some slack. In the text, it actually says, the, they called him a boy, and the, the word they use for boy there means he was probably like 8 to 13 years old. And Paul preached for a long time. He'd already preached to midnight. And they had gathered in, in a house, and it was a two-story house, and most likely what had happened is Eutychus had gotten kind of sleepy, and you know how it is. He had worked all day. He had worked all day. He was probably tired, but he had come to worship. He gets up. He's listening to Paul. And Paul's just going on and on and on and on. So he goes up higher. He's going to get by a window. He's going to get some fresh air. You know, you're driving. You get tired. You roll the windows down. Get the air blowing in your face. Maybe that'll keep you up. I start preaching too long. You start chewing gum or sucking on a mint or doing something to try to keep yourself awake. He's up there, he got drowsy. Now what happens when there are a lot of lamps in the room? What does fire do to oxygen? Eats it up. The room was full of lamps, lots of fire. Oxygen was getting eaten up. Sleepy Eutychus went up to the second story and sat by a window to try to stay awake and his eyes got heavy and he said, I'll just close them for a second. If I can close them for a second, I'll be all right. I I can catch back up, but you know, that never works. He probably had the head bobbing. And before he knew it, he fell asleep. And while he fell asleep, he fell out the window. Now, you don't have a far way to fall if you fall asleep. 
And I notice that many of you fall asleep when I preach. It's, it's all right. Um, some of you are valiant. You pull your phones out. You start texting. Start playing Angry Birds, doing something. But God speaks to us through his word. And we've ordered our time together to actually respond in a right way. And the first way that we respond, honestly, is while we're speaking. You need to be an active listener. You need to be actively listening, anticipating what God is saying through his word. I don't know what that means for you. If it means taking notes or it doesn't take notes, it means you need to be active in your listening. You need to be praying for your heart in preparation for this time. You need to be praying for whoever's preaching as they're preaching. You need to be asking God to help you understand what's being said. You need to be active in your listening. This is a participation process. Sometimes I actually ask questions. You can talk back. But you need to be an active listener, preparing yourself for this. But after God speaks to his word, we intentionally take a minute and a half to just reflect. If you've been here, you know that. We just take a minute and a half just to reflect. Let you deal with Jesus and let Jesus deal with you. For some, during that time, it's a time of prayer and a time of confession. On the back of your bulletin, there are actually a couple of prayers right there that can help guide you in that time, can kind of lead your prayers and, and help you respond. But we reflect and then we confess. And we respond in this way to the speaking of God's word as we've seen ourselves in light of who he is and what he has done. Repentance is almost always needed. And from there, we're reminded that God then strengthens his people at his table. As we've seen him in his holiness and we've heard of his grace and his goodness and we've been reminded of our sinfulness. As the gospel is proclaimed through God's word, we're reminded of his grace and his forgiveness. And then we do what we've already talked about in celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper. God's strengthening us at his table. Together we take communion, remembering in a tangible way Jesus' sacrifice in our place. It's a physical, tangible assurance of the pardon that God has given us through Jesus. And so as we proclaim pardon in the gospel, as we preach, we then tangibly take and remind ourselves of that pardon as we take communion. And we respond to his goodness this way. And for those who call Redemption Hill home as a part of that continuation of response to God's grace in worship, you have a chance to actually give of your tithes and your offerings. That's just a continuation of your worship for rightly understanding that your ultimate satisfaction is in God and his call on us to respond and to giving to him cheerfully and sacrificially and regularly. This is the time in worship that you have to do that as a continuation of your worship. And as we take communion together, being strengthened and assured of God's pardon, we then respond in grateful praise and thanksgiving. We sing songs of his glory and grace at the end as a chance to respond with our whole mouth, our whole, our whole body and our, and our mouth to who he is and what he's done. And as we do that, we're then sent out as his people into the world. After he's called us into his presence, instructing us in his word, assuring us of forgiveness, God sends us out to live the gospel story of redemption in our homes, jobs, neighborhoods, and the cities we love. We don't just go to lunch we're reminded that we're sent out as ambassadors for his glory in unceasing worship, in pursuit of satisfaction in him. And as we gather together, which is normal for the local church, for a corporate time of worship, in everything we do, we aim to make the gospel central and clear with the hope and the prayer that you would leave more impressed with God and more satisfied with God than when you came.
Now, it's kind of an implicit thing in Acts 20. It doesn't actually say that's what happened, but when Paul went down and took Eutychus up into his arms and proclaimed to the church that life was still in him, notice he went back and took communion and kept preaching. He wasn't done. I wonder what his mood was like. But you know, you know he was preaching Jesus from the scriptures. And when that boy died and he went down and grabbed him and that boy rose to life, you better believe Paul went back up into that room and started preaching about the resurrection. You better believe that God gave Paul a tangible example in his preaching. And Luke said that they were not just a little bit comforted. They were not just a little more encouraged. They were not just a little more satisfied in God than they were than when they came. That's, that's the aim of what we do. For the gospel to be central, the gospel to be clear, and for you to leave more satisfied in God than when you became. I'm going to close with Shelby. We'll let him close it out. He said, In authentic, God-centered worship, we respond in praise to our God for the glory and greatness that he has revealed to us. We respond in thanksgiving to our God for the saving grace that he has lavished upon us, We respond in wonder and delight to our God for the relationship that he has initiated with us. And even our response to God depends not on our own strength, but on the Holy Spirit working in us. Our time together is normal. It's something that we join in the Christian church throughout centuries in doing. It's worthy of your intention. It's worthy of your intention. It's worthy of your participation. It's worthy of your preparation of your heart and your participation as we come together. And for your participation to be maximized, let me just bring a little bit of encouragement. It's worthy of your punctuality. When we rightly understand why we gather, when we rightly understand what informs our gathering, our time together is worthy of your participation. It's worthy of your punctuality. It's worthy of you being here, ready and on time to join with all of God's people and responding to God's goodness and responding together to God's grace and allowing God to use the gifts that he has given you to encourage and build up the body. Our time together is worth it. It's not formality. It's not just something that we have to do. But it's a corporate expression of our unceasing worship and our passionate pursuit of our deepest satisfaction in God. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that as we come together, as we celebrate your goodness and we celebrate your grace, we surrender to your word and we make much of your son, that we are strengthened, that we are encouraged, and that our satisfaction in you is deepened. This is my prayer. We want to be a people whose satisfaction in you is deep, whose gospel roots go deep whose satisfaction in you is passion, who are passionate about, passionate about having more joy and delight in you. This is my hope and this is my prayer. And I ask that you do whatever you need to do by your spirit in our hearts to show us where we consistently and even sometimes unknowingly exchange satisfaction in you for the pursuit of satisfaction in something else. And I ask that your Holy Spirit wreck that. Let it wreck it that I absolutely undo it, that you do whatever you need to do to remove that thing, that you might bring us through repentance to a right understanding of you. 
and our eyes of our hearts turn directly towards you and our feet strengthened to pursue you all the days that you've given us. We ask this, Lord, that you be made great and you be made much of. Amen.